Well, you guys ready for the word this morning? Well, let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And Lord, as we spend time studying your word, I just pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be open and ready to receive what you have for us. Lord, that when we hear your word, that we would not be taken aback, that we would not uh, uh, shrink back, but instead that we would grab a hold of it, that we would apply it in our lives. And Lord, that that, uh, your word would have its way in us. And we thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, hallelujah. We're going to go ahead and continue on in our study as we make our way through the book of 1 John. Today we're going to start in chapter 3. Um, only going to make it about halfway through the first 10 verses, <clears throat> but uh, uh, we got a lot to get through as we go through these first 10 verses. And here's the thing, that as soon as you become born again, as soon as you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, an amazing thing happens. You're made brand new. You get a new spirit inside of you, but you are given the right to be called a child of God. And that's not just an honorary title. Something actually happens when you're born again. A miracle takes place, and you you get a new spirit inside of you, and you are adopted into the family. It means that you have changed. It means that you're not who you used to be. It means that you should look different. Your life should look different. And the truth is, is that when you're born again, you should live differently than what you did before you were born again. And no one who is born again makes a practice of sinning. And John's going to really hammer this point home today, this idea of if you're born again, you shouldn't sin. How many of you guys know that? See, the thing is, is, is Christians seem to know that, but they don't heed it. Some, I guess, don't know what is sin or they're confused did you know that if you want to know if something is sin the best way to do it is ask somebody who's not a believer they all know what sin is they'll tell you if you say you're a christian and you're doing something wrong they'll let you know but the reality is is that we should look different and christians shouldn't sin We've been saved from that. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're actually going to take a couple steps back, and we're going to go over some stuff that, that Pastor Joseph went over last week. But the, the reality is, is there's kind of a, a, the thought of what John goes into today starts a couple verses ago. So 1 John 2, 28 through 29 says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So like I said, I decided to jump back a couple verses because it's here at verse 28 that a a new thought is actually forming. He's kind of moved on from what he was talking about. And if you remember, um, right before these verses, he was talking about Antichrist, right? Anyone who says that Jesus is not Lord. We're not talking about the Antichrist that's coming back in the the book of Revelation, the end of days. We're talking about Antichrist, everyone who is anti-Christ. Very clever how that word works that way, huh? So these were those who went out and they were were taught by John and the apostles. These were guys that, that were with them, but then it says that they went out from them because they were never really with them. They got in there, they were trying to take advantage of people, and they went out and they were teaching something contrary to what John and the other apostles were teaching. And and John just got done dealing with that, so he begins to transition into a new subject. And really what he's going to talk about, and what he's all dealing with, is this idea of when Jesus comes back, that when he appears, 
we may have confidence. This whole next section is about how we're supposed to live our life because we know he's coming back so that when he appears, we don't have to shrink back in shame. And the instruction is for us to abide in him. Now, every Christian should look forward to the return of Jesus Christ because when he comes back, everything changes. How many know that that Jesus right now already has the victory, but it hasn't fully been played out yet. There are some things that haven't happened yet. But when he comes back, everything changes. The final enemies of Jesus are put as a footstool underneath his feet. Heaven and earth is soon going to be rebuilt. Hope you're not too attached to this one. It's broken anyway. It's getting remade. All tears are going to be wiped away. Things are going to change. It's going to be a joyous occasion when Jesus comes back. At least if you're a believer. Might not be if you're not, because you're going to realize that it was too late. You've been given your entire life to make a decision to say yes, but when he comes back, it's going to be too late. You missed your opportunity. But until he does come back, as Christians, John says that we are to abide in him. And that word abide is just to continue. It's to continue in fellowship with him. It's to be in relationship with him. It's to continue putting your trust in him. It's to continue doing what he says. Because he's your Lord and Savior. If, he's, if you don't want to call him as your Lord, you're kind of missing out on the, the big picture. He's your Lord and Savior. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But we're supposed to abide in him and to listen to him and be obedient to him. And this idea of, of abiding, like I said, is to continue in fellowship with him. And the reality is it's this it's idea of sonship or being born of God. When you, get, when you get born again, when you ask Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, you are made brand new. You're not who you used to be. You get adopted in to the greatest family that ever existed. And you have the greatest dad you ever had. When you're born again, you're not intended to go back to who you were. You're not intended to go back to the things that had a hold of you. You're actually free from sin. You're not free to sin. You are set free from all of those things. And John has already uh, made much ado about abiding, even in the first couple chapters of this letter. And in 1 John 2, 2, 6, we find out that we're supposed to walk as he walked. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk? He walked without sin. He walked with his eyes on the Father. He gave an example for us to how we live. He walked with compassion. And he, he was an example of love to each and every one of us. We should walk as he walked. He also says in 1 John 2.10 that we should love one another. For whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. We also see that we're supposed to have the word abide in us. The word continue in us. And that's uh, 1 John 2.14. It says, I write to you fathers because you know, who, know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And we also find that if we're going to abide forever, that, that we should be doing the will of God. 1 John 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, when we abide in him, when we continue in him, when we continue in fellowship with him, 
then we can stand before Jesus when he appears. And it says that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, you got to think about this, how powerful this really is. How amazing this. I mean, have you seen people that meet a celebrity and their heart gets all a flutter and their knees get all weak? They're so excited. They just met some dude that was on TV. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing. For some reason, we, we apply some sort of, of magical status to people who are famous. What about when you're standing before somebody that you should be in awe and respect of? Somebody that should actually make you fall to your knees. You know, in the, the, the Old Testament, whenever somebody realized they were standing before the angel of the Lord, when they realized they were standing before God, they all wanted to kill themselves. They're like, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm going to die. Even though, that they were try- they, even though they, they knew God and they were trying to do right, they still, when they appeared in front of God, they were afraid. The Bible says that we can stand before Jesus with confidence and not shrink. Do you understand how amazing that is? None of us has the right to stand before Jesus like that. But he gave us that right. Because of what he did, he made it so we could stand in front of him. So that we could be in front of him and not worry about dying. Worrying about being punished or destroyed because what he did was enough. Because when we abide in him, we have been made brand new. And our sin is as far as from us as the east is from the west. We're forgiven. We are pure. We are righteous. In that moment, the moment you said yes, you were made all of those things. And because of that, we don't have to shrink back. And it's not because of anything that we did. We all know that. We can't earn it. We can't do it ourselves. There's nothing you can do to make yourselves right with God. But what he did makes us right with him. And because of that, we, we are able to do an amazing thing, stand before him without being afraid, without shrinking back in shame. But you know, the opposite is entirely true as well. If we don't abide in him, then we're not going to be able to stand in front of him without being in shame, without cowering in fear. We're not going to have any confidence you want to know why you're not going to have any confidence? Because you know if you try to do it on your own, you actually can't measure up. Every single one of us recognizes that. They would have to, if we don't abide in him, we would have to shrink back. You know, there's been much discussion in the church over the years about whether you can lose your salvation. And I'm not talking about... The, uh, you can't have your salvation stolen from you. You can't have it taken from you. You can't, if you have a bad day, that doesn't mean that, you, that you're not saved until you somehow make up for it. When you put your trust in Jesus, it has nothing to do with your, your actions, but it's your faith that makes you saved. So it can't be taken away. The devil can't steal it away. Somebody else can't steal it away. So in that sense, no, you can't lose your salvation. But I believe you can make a choice to walk away. If you choose to no longer abide in him, then that puts you in a precarious place. And I think that there's many other scriptures that support this idea as well. That you can have your faith in him and then, and then walk away. And that's, that's a scary thing. If you once abided in him and you walked away, that's a scary place 
to be because if we no longer abide in him, we can't have confidence. That's what John is saying here. If you abide in him, you can have confidence. But if you don't abide in him, you can't have confidence before him. And I imagine it's a much worse place to be if when Jesus returns, because you once knew the truth and you walked away. And the book of Hebrews says it's impossible to renew someone to a repentance, or to renew someone to the truth that they've walked away. As long as you maintain that attitude that you're not going to, 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 to abide in him, to walk with him, you're in a dangerous place. To, it's a dangerous place to be. But the good news is, if you do abide in him, you can have confidence. One of the, the greatest things about Christianity is that you can know for sure that you're saved. You don't have to wonder. All the other religions in the world is about what you can do to get right with God, and you never know if you really made it. Did you do enough? Have you tipped the scales? But with Christianity, there's no scales to tip. You either trust in Him or you don't. You've either accepted Him as your Savior or you haven't. You either abide in Him or you don't abide in Him. That's the option. You put your trust in Him and He does the work to make sure that you're saved. We can be confident. That's why you can be confident. And that means we can know for sure. And then John goes on and says, and if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him does this mean that anybody who does a righteous thing is saved no just like there's a difference between a christian who occasionally sins and someone who practices sin there's a difference between someone who occasionally does something righteous and somebody who practices righteousness there's a difference. It's true that there are a lot of unsaved people who have done righteous things. There's a lot of unsaved people that have done... Matter of fact, there's probably unsaved people that look more like Christians than some of the Christians that are walking around this country today because of the way they live their life. But our salvation, our righteousness has never been based on what we do. It's been based on what He has done. So it's true. There are unsaved people that have done righteous things, but they're incapable of practicing righteousness. Because they're still a slave to sin. If you're not born again, you're not free from sin. And ultimately, sin has control over you. So they can't practice righteousness. So the point that John is trying to make is that if we are abiding in, or if we are continuing in Jesus, there's going to be some evidence of this in your life. Your life should look different. Now, it may not be perfect. I know when I got saved, it, didn't, it wasn't a light switch in my life. It was a slow burn. I was figuring out along the way. But it looked different every day. Every day, I began to look more and more like Jesus. And same with many of you. I know a lot of people, they got saved and everything changed. And that's great that, that happens to people. It didn't happen to me. But every day, I got closer and closer to God and looked more and more like His Son. And I still got a long way to go. But every day I get better. Amen? And there's evidence of that in my life. And for every one of you who abide in Jesus, there's evidence of that in your life. If you're born again, we can all look back and go, you know what? I look different than I did a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago. And so just like there's evidence if you are, there's also evidence if you're not. 
And that's what the majority of this section, this, this section of this epistle is about. It's about John dealing with people who practice sin and practice righteousness. And basically those who are practicing righteousness are abiding in Jesus. But those who are practicing sin are not. Amen? 1 John 3.1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. In the Gospel of John, we learn something important. And I talked about this briefly earlier, but in John 1.12, it says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God of God. This is contrary to the platitude that's often espoused that we're all children of God. Has anybody ever heard that? We're all children of God. That's not what the Bible says. Now it's true in the most generic sense of the term that God created everything. You know, just like uh, you could say that, that, uh, that the builder of this building would be the father of this building. There's no relationship there. It's just the builder built it. But as far as being adopted into the family, as far as having a, 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 a father-child relationship, the only people who have the right to do that are those who've turned and put their trust in Jesus Christ. It says it. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John just finished in the beginning, what we just read through that, uh, telling us this reality of being born again or being born into this family results in living righteousness. And now he's going to draw our attention to something that's actually uh, pretty amazing. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. He wants us to take a moment to really contemplate the greatness of God's divine love in doing so. You know, sometimes it's so easy to become jaded to some of the stuff because we've heard it our whole life. You know, Jesus loves us. You know, that, oh, we're children of God. We hear all these things, but it, it goes in one ear and out the other because we stop thinking about how awesome this really is. How amazing of a thing that God loved us so much that he sent his son to pay for our sins so that we could be adopted into the family, that we could call him father, that we could cry out, Abba, Father. And John wants us to, to contemplate the reality of that great love that God had towards us. Because here's the reality, church. He didn't have to send Jesus. He could have just went, you know what? I'm going to take a mulligan on this one. We're going to start over. Wipe the whole thing out. He didn't have to send Jesus. He didn't have to come and make us right. He didn't have to save us. But he loved us so much that he made a way for us to be saved, for us to be redeemed. And then even more than that, he invited us into the family, gave us our share of the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. And all this he does freely. He gives it to us freely. That's what it says here. This is, this is love that the Father has given to us. Other translations say he's lavished us with this love. And he gives it to us freely because we didn't earn it. We don't have to perform for it. We don't have to meet certain requirements. He gives it to us because he wants to, because he loves us. And John really wants us to think about what an amazing thing this really is. 
This is a big deal, church. It's so important that we don't become jaded to the reality of what God has done for us. Think back to when you first got saved and you recognized that you were a sinner. You needed a Savior. And you were so thankful for what God did. But so often we spend our, our, our lives as Christians day in, day out, doing the same old stuff. We're, we're hitting the checklist, but we forget what an amazing thing this really is. God has lavished an amazing amount of love on us to call us His children. But the reality is, is that does set us apart from the rest of the world. He says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The reality of the world not recognizing us is because God doesn't rec- because the world doesn't recognize God as the Father. And if they don't recognize God as the Father, we can be hardly surprised that they don't recognize us. And the truth is, is that we have different fathers. Christians have God as their father, but unbelievers are of their father the devil. That's what the scripture says. They're of their father the devil. And this is why there's so much friction in the world between believers and unbelievers. It's because we're from fundamentally different families with different fathers. It's why we can view things so differently because the world doesn't know us, it doesn't understand us, nor does it comprehend us. That's why that they see stands against homosexuality or abortion is hate rather than love. I was on Facebook not too long ago speaking with somebody um, about homosexuality. And I don't remember all the details, but I remember finally having to tell him, like, you and I want the same result for this person. We both love this person. We both care about this person. We want the same thing for this person. We just have different ideas of what that is. I want them to be set free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death. I want them to be set free, completely free. And I call that love. You want them to be free to do whatever they want, to be dragged down by this sin, to be pulled under by it, to let it have control over their life. And you call giving them that freedom love. We just see it differently. We come from different families. We have different fathers. So we shouldn't be shocked when we're understood differently. Abortion's the same way. I say no, we should ban all abortion because that's what the loving thing is to do, to protect that unborn child, to protect that kid, to protect that one in the womb. And they say, oh no, we have to let the woman have freedom with her body. We have different ideas of what love is, of what life is. And we shouldn't be shocked that they don't know us because they don't know the Father. Amen? In 1 John 3, 2 through 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. John addresses the readers here, and that includes us, as beloved. Other translations, if you, if you go through and look at different ones, the, most translations translate it as beloved. The NIV, the NLT, those are the couple quick ones I found, they translate it as dearest friends. And the thing is, by translating this as dearest friends, we're kind of missing out on an emphasis that John is making. 
And it's that love that the brethren should have towards one another. There's an emphasis on love here. Beloved. It was only in the last chapter that John emphasized the importance of loving your brothers, to love one another. It wasn't that long ago. And now he says, beloved, we are God's children. Now, do you know that he's including himself in that? He doesn't say you are, you are God's children now. He says we are God's children now. And he includes himself on that. Because here's the thing, regardless of who you are, you need a Savior. The apostles weren't in some special boat that, that had a different method to salvation, a different way to salvation. These are the apostles. The ones that Jesus handpicked himself, but they still needed a Savior. And they still got the same rights that we do to be called children of God. John needed the same redemption as you and I, and he got adopted into the family the same way as you and I did. And that's where we're at now, he says. We are God's children now. We just talked about that. What an amazing thing that is. We are God's children now. But then he goes to point out that we're destined to be something more. He says, look, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It's an amazing thing that there's more to come, isn't it? Right now, we've been made God's children. Yet there's still more to come. And this is what John wants to really point out. He says, look, we're God's children now. That's amazing. We know that he, he really wanted you to think about that because last verse he said, see what kind of love he's given us to do that. But that's not it. We're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. There's more to come. What this means is that even though we're currently God's children, we haven't experienced the full extent of what salvation what being made brand new means for us this is what paul said about it in first corinthians 15 51 through 53 he says behold i tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye in the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality the reality is, is that our current state as God's children is amazing. But what we will be will be even more extraordinary. We can't even imagine it. He says we will be like him. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're going to be like him because we finally see who he really is. I wonder how much of us not being like him now is because we don't actually have a a revelation or, or see the reality of who he is and who we are because of him. We don't have a, a perfect revelation of what's been accomplished inside of us. I think that's the, the, the main thing of maturing and growing as a Christian is, is every day you have a greater revelation of who you are in Jesus. But we don't see it all right now. And we don't actually know what that's going to look like. He says, look, we don't know what we're going to be. He says, uh, we, we will not be as he is. Uh, yeah. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we should be like him. We don't know what he's going to be. John says as much. You know, what we will be, we don't know. He's not here yet. But it's going to be amazing. 
And we know it's going to be good. And that's where we're going. And it says, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So all of us who hopes in Him and in His appearing, He says we're purifying ourselves as He is pure. And it's not something that we're actually doing. This isn't about you living right and somehow making yourself better. It's not about doing the right things. It's not about praying enough. It's not about going to church enough. It's not about any of that stuff. It's because you put your trust in Him. The reality is, is we don't have the ability to purify ourselves. If we did, then it would be kind of silly to send Jesus, don't you think? But we don't. But by placing our trust in Jesus, by being born again, we have been made pure. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you are made spiritually pure as Jesus in that moment because of what He has done. Because it's His purity that you've received. It's His Spirit that you have received inside of you. When, you see, when, when God looks down at you, He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. And then most of our life is letting that live out in our lives. It takes a little while for our body to catch up to the reality of what's happened in our spirit when we are born again. And he goes on in 1 John 3, 4 through 6, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I think a lot of Christians today have a problem with this. Somehow along the way, we have cheapened grace. And instead of understanding that the reason why God extended grace for you was, was for you to be free from sin, it's been treated as some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. It's become a license to sin instead of free freedom from sin. And, and, and people live their lives like, oh, it's okay, Jesus will forgive me. And they've missed out on the, on the whole point of what Jesus did for you in the first place. You know, as we've been following along with John, he's already said multiple times that if we're to abide in him, that, that we are to abide in him, and everyone who abides in him practices righteousness. And like we said, this is a big deal because being born of him, being a child of God, is a gift of God, and it's a demonstration of how he lavished his love upon us. And because of that, like we've said, right now, at this moment, we are children of God. And when Jesus returns, we're going to experience the fullness of what that means. Also, like he said, right this moment, we're pure just as he is pure. And this means something. This means that being born again and abiding in Jesus is fundamentally incompatible with the practice of sin. Sinning is incompatible with being a Christian. You know, if you look up the word practice in the dictionary, it means a habitual or customary performance. If you use it as a verb, to practice something, it means to perform or do habitually or usually. It's the same way we use the word practice when we're referring to doctors, right? They practice medicine. We all, we all giggle about it because we grew up playing baseball and softball. When you practice, you're doing that to get better at something. But really, the word practice comes from the fact that you do it over and over and over. It becomes a habit. That's where the word practice comes from. It's not about getting better. It's about doing it over and over and over again, habitually. 
So that's how we use the word. When they practice medicine, that means that they are doing medicine daily. It's a habit. They're doing it continually. It's part of their job. They're doing it usually like the definition says. How many know this is not the same? It's me giving my kids some cough syrup. Now, on the outside, it, we could say that I'm doing the same thing a doctor does, right? I am identifying the symptoms, determining what is wrong. I am giving them the medicine so that that way that they can recover. In that sense, I did everything a doctor did. But no one in their right mind would say that I'm practicing medicine. There's a difference, right? In the same way, and the reason I'm laboring this so much it's because I think as Christians, we can read this stuff, and if we're not careful to understand it, we can scare ourselves. We can worry about something we shouldn't be worrying about. Because many of us will read this and go, man, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. And then he goes, oh, no one abides in him, keeps on sinning. And we can freak out, man. I, because I think all of us do sin from time to time. And now we're concerned. What does this mean? Does this mean I'm not abiding in him anymore? Does this mean that I can't stand before him in confidence? And the reason I'm laboring this, the, what the word practice means is because I don't want us to get confused. Neither did John. It wasn't that long ago when he says, look, Christians don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father that is Jesus Christ. The key point is, are you practicing sin? Is it something that you do usually? Is this something that you do Continually. If you're born again, you should have confidence in your standing before the Lord. Just as if I occasionally give my, my son cough medicine, doesn't mean I'm practicing medicine. If you stumble and you sin, it doesn't mean you're practicing sin. You repent, you thank God that you're forgiven, you get up, and you move on. Your good living didn't result in your salvation. It was your faith in Jesus that did that. And in the same way, your occasional sin is not going to nullify your faith in Jesus Christ. You repent. You thank God for forgiving you. You get up. And you don't do it again. And what if you do do it again? You repent. You get up. You thank God for forgiving you. And you don't do it again. But what if you do do it again? You get up. You repent, you thank God for forgiving you, and you don't do it again. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up seven times. You just keep getting back up. The issue is when you don't get back up. When sin, it doesn't bother you anymore. So that's not what John is talking about here. John is talking about those who are practicing sin. This is where sin is habitual. It's the norm for them. And John says, even if they say they're a Christian, they're not because they're practicing sin. They're not abiding in him. And you have to remember what John is dealing with too, right? He just got done talking about all these antichrists, these people that were coming in teaching that sin didn't matter, that sin had no impact on your life. And John says, no, that's not the truth. If you are practicing sin, then you're practicing lawlessness. You're acting in direct. He says, look, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So if we continue to practice sin, those who claim that it's okay, they are actually uh, 
coming and acting in direct opposition of what Jesus came to do in the first place. Jesus came to remove sin, to take away sin. And like I said, intentionally, willfully sinning is incompatible with being a Christian. And John says that that no one who abides or continues in fellowship, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Reality is it doesn't matter if you say that you're a Christian or not. If you don't abide in Him and you continue to sin, there's evidence that you don't. It says, look... If no one who abides in him and keeps on sinning, or sorry, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If, if you keep on sinning, then you don't really abide in him. It's incom- I want you guys to understand that these two things are incompatible with one another. You can't be a Christian and choose to just keep living in sin because somewhere you've missed the point and you're acting in opposition to what Jesus has actually done for you. In John 3, 7 through 8, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. That means us. That means there's going to be people trying to deceive you. You've probably heard it even in this day and age where people begin to rationalize different sins. They begin to say they're okay or no, that's not what this means. And they begin to, to, to try to make sin okay. We live in a world right now that's championing sin. They're not even allowing it. They're, they're on board with it. They're championing it. But he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, John knows that there are those who are trying to deceive his disciples. But he wants to ensure that they're not deceived. He wants to warn them so that they don't get caught up in this idea that sin is okay. And he says it quite clear. If you practice righteousness, you're righteous. And if you practice sinning, you're of the devil. The entire reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. But the one who practices sin is in fellowship with the devil. They're abiding in the devil. And how can one who claims to be Christian allow that to be a part of their life and just like john church i don't want any of you to be deceived anyone who says that sin is okay for any reason is a liar sin isn't okay you were jesus came to free you from sin and as a christian we should not be trying to justify sin in our life we should be trying to get rid of it to eliminate it, to repent and walk away from it. And we certainly be, try to see how close we can get to sin. You know, that's one thing that, that I hear a lot of, especially from young Christians, and, and in some ways it's understandable, they're just learning, but is this a sin? Is this a sin? Can I do this? Because the problem is, is many of us are trying to see how close to sin we can get without touching it. But the thing is, the closer you get to sin, the farther you are from God. Sin and God don't sit side by side. You can't be close to both of them at the same time. And the reality is this. If you have to ask if it's a sin, just walk away from it. If you have to ask whether something is a sin or not, don't do it. 
Because if you're not sure, you can't do that thing in faith. And everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's what Romans 14.23 says. And if you, if you read the book of Romans, he's actually talking about eating meat at that point in time. He goes on to say that eating, men's, eating meat's not a sin. But basically, if you can't do it in faith, it's a sin to you. So if you're not sure, if you can't do it in confidence in the Lord, then just walk away from it. It's not worth it. Because here's the thing, church. 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I've said it multiple times this morning to really hammer it home. When you're born again, a miracle takes place inside of you. You're not who you used to be. You are born of God at that moment. You're not who you used to be. And if you're born again, then sin is foreign and contradictory to you. Do you know that's why you feel wrong when you sin? When we slip up, we mess up, that's why you feel guilty, that's why you feel wrong. Because sin is incompatible with, with who you are. It's incompatible with the new self, who you've been made because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is why John can make this conclusion. If somebody is practicing sin, then they're not born of God because the person in whom God's seed abides, he cannot keep on sinning. It's impossible because it's in contradiction to who you are. I'm not talking. Sometimes we mess up. I get that. You get up and you move on. But you, if you're born again, you actually can't make a practice of sinning because it's in opposition to who you are. And you're free from sin. He says, if you're born again, you can't keep on sinning. And then he finishes up, in verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The reality is, church, that if you're born again, there will be evidence of that in a changed life. You won't live the way you used to live. And like I said, some people it's a light switch. For others, it takes time. But every day, you're looking more and more different. Less like yourself, more and more like Jesus. If you're going the other way, take a look at your life and see what's going on. Because the reality is, is the fruit is in keeping with the tree that it comes from. The evidence, the fruit of your life. It, it gives us an idea. Now, I, I realize it's not my job or anybody in this room's job to judge or determine someone's relationship with God. I can't, I, I, you know, that's your faith that determines that. But the Bible is clear that if you have that faith, your life begins to look different. There is evidence of that in your life. And the Bible says if you don't practice righteousness, or you don't love your brother, then you're not of God. You're not a child of God, but you're a child of the devil. And to be clear, I didn't write this. John did. If you have a problem with this idea, don't talk to me. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it to you. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Once again, before we close, I want to remind you, this is not talking about the occasional sin. For the Christian, sin should be rare in your life. And if you slip, if you mess up, you know what? Thank God that you're forgiven, repent, and get up. Always get back up. And you can still be confident in the finished work of Jesus Christ in which you have put your faith. You slipping up does not change that. But you've got to remember that John is dealing with these, these false teachers, these antichrists that are coming in saying, no, no, you can sin and do whatever you want and still be a Christian. And he says, no, that's, that's not okay. And the truth is, if you hear that today, they're wrong too. If you see anyone that claims to be a Christian but is practicing sin, I would caution to receive any spiritual advice from them. Maybe you find yourself today in a position where you say you're a Christian, but if you examine your life, you realize that you are practicing sin. It's not too late. It doesn't mean that you're stuck. It doesn't mean that you don't have any hope or any way to come out of it. Repent. Get up. Thank God for forgiving you and reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ and the work that He has done. And then begin to abide in Him moving forward, living out your salvation in your life. And you'll see the evidence of a changed man, a changed person, a new self as you abide in Him and walk away from sin. And for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who are born again and are our children of God, let's ensure that we're never deceived. Let's, never, let's ensure that we're never enticed by the allure of the passing pleasures of sin and begin to justify those things in our life. Let's continue to abide in Him so that way we can know that when He appears we can stand before Him with confidence and we don't have to shrink back because He has made us new. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.